evidence and answers. What is your view of environmentalism? We think of environmentalists as tree huggers or liberals in tune with Mother Earth. What is the Christian's responsibility in regards to our environment? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukram. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, let's listen to one of our breakout sessions taken from the 2017 Apologetics Conference held in Hawaii. Each year, Pat hosts this conference and brings out the best scholars, teachers, and authors to share in teaching and equipping you, the believer, to be able to share your faith effectively in our culture today. The theme was demolishing strongholds of unbelief. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Listen as Dr. Leslie Wickman shares a message entitled Christian Environmentalism. So this topic is especially near and dear to my heart. I grew up uh, close to a First Nations reservation in the Pacific Northwest. I was very close to nature and in the shadow of a father who was both a forester as well as a Boy Scout wilderness leader. I had summer jobs uh, working in the woods throughout high school and college, and I still enjoy the great outdoors every chance I get. And a few years ago, I was privileged to be asked by Dr. Cal DeWitt, some of you may have heard of him, he's associated with the Osabel Institute, as a founding member of the Academy of Evangelical Scientists and Ethicists, working to promote environmental stewardship and creation care. And I'd also like to acknowledge Dr. Randy Van Draat from Calvin College as another inspiration for this lecture, and I'll refer to some of his material later. Sometimes, though, it feels like we're constantly inundated by the world's take on environmental issues, with rhetoric about saving Mother Earth and the Gaia hypothesis that the entire Earth and everything on it should be thought of as a single organism. But what should our perspective as Christians be? Personally, I think we have a higher calling from God to be good stewards of His creation, and we Christians really should be leading the charge for the care of the Earth and all that's in it. And various verses in scripture speak about the value that God puts on creation. And there are two passages of the Bible that have had the greatest impact on my personal view of creation. The first is at the end of the creation story in Genesis 1 verse 31, which says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. If God looked at what he had created and thought that it was good, very good, how much more should we respect and care for it? Second passage is John 3:16, which most of us know by heart, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The one thing that we don't often pay attention to when we cite that passage is that the word that is translated as world in our English Bibles is cosmos in the Greek, which includes every created thing in the entire universe, not just our earth. So think about what that means. God loved all of his creation so much that he sent Jesus to die to reconcile it to himself. And from this perspective, God must really love and value everything he made and sets an example for us to do the same. Now, there are a number of environmental themes in the Bible. 
with references in both the Old and New Testaments, according to William Johnson at Arizona State University. The first theme is creation, which is by God, who called it good in Genesis 1, as I just mentioned. And the next is stewardship, where God gives humans responsibility for creation, again in Genesis 1. The next is provision of God for humankind through creation, as in Genesis 1.29, which reads, And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. The next theme is pleasure of God in his creation, not only in John 3.16, where we talked about how he loves his whole creation, but also in Revelation 4.11, which reads, Worthy, O Master, yes, our God, take the glory, the honor, the power. You created it all. It was created because you wanted it. The next theme is praise. All of creation praises the creator, as in Psalm 69.34, you heavens, praise him, praise him, earth. Also oceans and all things that swim in it. The next theme is authority of God over his creation, as in Luke 8, verse 25. And he said to them, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? The next theme is witness of nature to God's authority and provision, as in Acts 14, 17. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And then the theme of consequences to creation, including humans for man's wickedness, as in Revelation eleven eighteen, The nations were angry, and the time for your anger has come. The time has come to judge the dead. It is a time to reward your servants, the prophets, and your own people and those who honor you. There is a reward for all your people, both great and small. It is time to destroy those who destroy the earth. And finally, the theme of perspective that God is above his creation, as in Psalm 113, verses 3 through 6, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? These passages just are so meaningful, and they bring up so much emotion in me, just how glorious God is to provide for us so graciously with his creation. And for those of you who were here in the previous talk when I was mentioning how finely tuned everything is, here on earth for our existence. It's not a provision that requires us to just barely survive, but to thrive. It's lush, it's extravagant, it's over the top in terms of how God has provided for us. And to me, that speaks volumes of a creator who deeply cherishes us. As I say, I feel that our response is one where we should take care of and respect and uh, nurture what he's given us. Now, the next slide. This cartoon is sad, but very possibly true. The threat to which delicate balance will spur an era of energy conservation. So the guy's looking at his checking account on the one hand, and then you've got the earth on the other. Uh, Matthew 6.21 reads, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It may be that the price of fossil fuels 
will actually force people to think about energy conservation. But let's hope and pray that what we treasure most is not found in our pocketbooks. This planet that we call home is unique, at least within our solar system, with, as I've mentioned in the previous talk, abundant water in all three physical phases, a protective, insulating atmosphere with substantial oxygen, a magnetic field that deflects dangerous charged particles, and the perfect distance from the sun to provide temperate climates and adequate energy, along with many other unique characteristics. But these components, the Earth, the water and the atmosphere and the physical and chemical and biological processes that govern their internet actions make up our biosphere, the sphere around and including the earth where life exists. And it provides what we humans and all other organisms need, not to just survive, but to flourish and to thrive. And aside from the physical attributes of our planet, our innate human curiosity inevitably leads us to ponder the bigger questions such as who does this planet and its resources belong to? What is the proper role of humans on the Earth? How can humans live on the Earth in a long-term and sustainable way? And consider this passage from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. And as it turns out, this is a nice acknowledgement of the Earth's interconnected and synergistic systems. Now today we face a number of threats to the creation that God blessed and called good in the book of Genesis. And this partial list includes some of the major issues that we're currently concerned with. Energy resources, water pollution, water resources, air pollution, climate change, deforestation, and the loss of biodiversity. Now, we don't have time to go into detail on each of these, but I'd like to try to cover the highlights quickly. So first, let's look at energy. At the present rate of energy consumption, all of the Earth's fossil fuel energy, with much of it in coal, will be consumed in the next 270 years. U.S. oil production peaked over three decades ago, and global oil production is expected to peak within the next decade. The bottom line is that fossil fuels aren't going to last forever, so we need to develop and utilize more sustainable energy sources such as solar, wind, geothermal, hydroelectric, and even possibly nuclear technologies that could be made safe, especially if current energy consumption rates continue, never mind increase with the growing global population and the industrialization of developing countries. And with respect to water, there's a growing demand for safe, clean water as overall populations grow. And there's greater awareness of waterborne diseases that are spread through the use of contaminated drinking and wash water. 18% of the world's population has inadequate water, and 40% lack sanitation treatment to maintain even the most basic health standards in developing countries. 80% of sickness is directly attributable to water-related diseases that we take for granted as being easily preventable. This thin blue line that you see in this next slide of our atmosphere as seen from space is essential for our existence. Yet the quantity of man-made pollutants is now significant enough 
to contaminate the atmosphere, leading to air pollution and acid rain, with their negative effects on the health and well-being of not only humans, animals, and plants, but also even on inanimate man-made objects. And moving on to climate change, many people ask, isn't what we hear about climate change or global warming just a natural variation in Earth's weather patterns? Well, humans have enjoyed a long stretch of time with relatively stable temperatures for the last 10,000 years or so. And it's important to remember that during the Ice Age, when sheets of ice covered the northwest of the United States, it was only four degrees Celsius cooler during the 20th century the increase in temperature was about 0.6 degrees C, or a full degree Fahrenheit. The duration and warming during the 20th century was much greater than any of the previous nine centuries, and the current rate of warming is unprecedented in at least 20,000 years. And these photos provide a visual depiction of the rate of deforestation that's occurring across the globe the amount of clear-cut area now exceeds the area of remaining rainforest timber stands. And the, net, and the cause of species declines in, declines in biodiversity include loss and degradation of natural habitats, new species introduction into existing habitats, overhunting and overfishing, disease and parasites, changing ecological interactions, and climate change. So, Back to our question that came up at the, the front end of this talk. Why should we care about the protection of other species? Here are four prevalent secular approaches to this question that are outlined by Dr. Van Dratt. First, we have the anthropocentric ethic, which says that species are of utilitarian, aesthetic, educational, and or spiritual value to humans. And next on the list, we have the biocentric ethic, claiming that all living things have intrinsic value that humans must recognize and respect. Third on the list, we have the deep ecology position, which states that the holistic quality of nature and our utter dependence on it must be respected. And finally, we have a position called ecofeminism, which says that the nurturing quality of nature must be emphasized and respected. Professor Max Allschlager, a philosopher from the University of North Texas, writes that most of Western civilization holds the following perspective relative to the environment. Non-human creation has instrumental or human-oriented value only, and claims of biocentric value have no place. Short-term economic interests override long-term concerns. Environmental risks, including species loss, are acceptable if they're economically beneficial. And furthermore, environmental risks, including species losses, pose no limits to growth, only challenges requiring technological solution. Science and technology will ultimately allow us to maintain essential processes of the biosphere within acceptable limits. And finally, the politics of interest will be sufficient to assure the best uses of technology. Now, if he's correct, this is not very encouraging news. And he's basically saying that this is the dominant Western social view of our relationship to the environment. So let's go back to the question, why should we care about the Earth? I have one word that sums it all up, stewardship. But what exactly, as Greg Kokel was saying earlier, what do we mean by that? What exactly is stewardship? 
And stewardship is management or care exercised by one individual on the behalf of another, usually the owner. So Christians broadly view themselves as stewards of God's creation. And where does this idea of stewardship come from? Well, God gives us humans responsibility over creation in Genesis 1.28, where it says, God blessed them, saying, Prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, be responsible for fish in the sea and birds in the air, for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. And the Reverend Jim Ball of the Evangelical Environmental Network refers to four distinct worldviews that various Christians hold relative to stewardship of God's creation. Now these, as opposed to the others, uh, are Christian worldviews. First is wise use. The next is anthropocentric stewardship. The next is caring management. And the next is servant stewardship. So we'll start by going through the, the wise use worldview. And in this worldview of wise use, God is seen as the ultimate provider of resources for human use. And the goal is to maximize human benefit. Humans are seen as rulers that God has put in charge of creation. And the rest of creation, which is abbreviated as ROC for short, so I may use that acronym. Uh, the rest of creation merely provides resources for human use. The value of the ROC is in human attributed value only because only humans are seen to have intrinsic value within this particular worldview. As for the interaction between humans and the rest of creation, humans are to make effective and efficient use of the rest of creation. And the emphases within this worldview are stewardship rhetoric, which is really just a cover for exploitation of the rest of creation. And the dominant attitude in this worldview is extreme arrogance in the status of humans relative to the rest of creation. Now the next worldview is the anthropocentric stewardship worldview, where God is seen as the creator and the owner of creation, and the goal is to maximize human good while conserving the rest of creation. Humans are seen as kings with power over creation, and the rest of creation is seen as providing resources, but is still God's property. The moral status of the rest of creation is that in recognizing that sin is disobeying God, wasteful use of the rest of creation could be sinful. And the value of the rest of creation itself is in the value attributed by God and humans together, with humans still having the highest value and coming first. As for the interaction between humans and the rest of creation, humans are to take what they need and improve the rest of creation. And this worldview has various emphases. First, human redemption has implications for the rest of creation. And second, meeting divine commands and leaving resources for future generations are key ethical guidelines. The dominant attitude of this worldview, however, is still arrogance toward the rest of creation. And next, the caring management worldview. God is seen as a creator and owner. He loves the rest of creation, but he loves humans more. The goal is that humans in creation flourish under caring management. Uh, humans are seen as lords and servants of creation. The rest of creation is seen as resources as well as fellow creatures. The moral status of the rest of creation is that it can be sinned against. And the value of the ROC is that it has intrinsic value, 
but less so than human value. And as for the interaction between humans and the ROC, humans are to care for and use the ROC sustainably. Human plans should be carefully weighed against impacts on the rest of creation, and this worldview has several emphases. First, the emphasis is on cosmic redemption, as in John 3.16 that I mentioned earlier, for God so loved the entire cosmos that he sent Christ. Second, the stress on human uniqueness as being made in the image of God. And finally, the responsibility of humans for the rest of creation. And the dominant attitude of this worldview is paternalism toward the rest of creation. Now, the final worldview presented here is the servant stewardship worldview, where God is seen as creator and redeemer of all. He loves and desires shalom or peace for all creation. The goal is the flourishing of all of creation. Humans are seen as servants, keepers, and preservers of the rest of creation, and the rest of creation is seen as fellow members of Christ's creation. The moral status of the rest of creation is that it can be sinned against and the value of the rest of creation is that it does have intrinsic God-given value. And as for the interaction between humans and the rest of creation, humans are to live so as to preserve and nurture the rest of creation. And this worldview has the emphases of cosmic redemption and human uniqueness is downplayed and rather Christ-like servanthood is stressed. And finally, human responsibility is emphasized over human priority. And the dominant attitude of this worldview is humility. And as we wrap things up for this session, I'd like to leave you with Professor Max Alschlager's challenge. He says, I think of religion, or more specifically the church, as being more important in the effort to conserve life on earth than all the politicians and experts put together. The church may be, in fact, our last best chance. My conjecture is this. There are no solutions for the systemic cause of eco-crisis, at least in democratic societies, apart from religious narrative. Now, a lot of times people might think, I'm just one person. What difference can I possibly make? But I'd like to encourage you to believe that one passionate and inspired person can make a big difference. And certainly, if everyone does their own part, together we can make a huge positive difference. On the other hand, if everyone takes the position that what I do doesn't matter, I'm just one person, that will make a huge negative difference. Now, one of my students responded to this issue by saying, instead of asking hopelessly, what can I do, I'm just one person, we really should be asking, what should I do? Which is, of course, the classical ethical dilemma. In conclusion, I'd like to take this one step further and make it personal by asking ourselves these questions. How do, or, how be, or better yet, how ought we to view God relative to creation? Is he merely a provider of the resources that we see in the world for human use, or is he creator, lover, and redeemer of all of creation? How ought we to see the value and the moral status of the rest of creation? Does it have value as resources for humans only? Or does it have God-given value as fellow members of creation, worthy of Christ's redemption? What ought to be the human role relative to the rest of creation? 
Is it merely to be users and exploiters, or is it to be servants, preservers, nurturers, even prayers and teachers to others? What ought to be our attitude towards the rest of creation? Condescension and arrogance, or rather humility, appreciation, contentment, delight, and care? I'm sorry, I get emotional about this because I, I care so deeply, and it's just so beautiful how God has so lovingly provided for us with his creation, and then our response should be one of gratitude and humility. Once we've answered these questions, the next and vital step is to figure out what actions are required to best put into practice our own personal environmental code of ethics. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, Pat's books, and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, 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 oh